Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes upon him, and they led him away to crucify him. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Matthew 27, verses 11, 27 through 31, and 33 through 37. Well, hey, good morning, Christ Church. If we have not met before, my name is Drake, and it's a joy to be with here, you here this morning. I want to begin our time together by asking everybody to reflect on this question. And the question is this. It's a fun one. It's not a hard one. Who is the most famous person that you have ever met? Think about that question for a second. I'm sure you've probably heard the question before, maybe in a social circle. It's been asked of the group, and it's unspoken, but it's a game, isn't it? Like, everybody wants to have the best name to bring to the table. And uh, I have a strategy that I like to employ when playing this game with people that I meet. I wait to hear what other people are saying first. That way I don't embarrass myself, right? Like, if they say one of the presidents or the Queen of England, I just don't ever offer up a name. I've never met anybody, actually, matter of fact. Or if they have, like, these secrets list celebrities or minor league baseball players that nobody's ever heard of, I know that I have a pretty good name that I'm going to come in at the end uh, with. So I met this guy when I was about eight or nine years old. It was at my brother's soccer game at the sports complex. My dad took me by the hand. He said, hey, come here. I want to introduce you to somebody. And we went over and we began to talk to this guy for several minutes. And then we said goodbye and we left. And my dad looked at me and he said, how cool is that? You just met one of the most famous people in the world. And I said, the guy with the beer gut is one of the most famous people in the whole world? I would meet this guy on different occasions as I was growing up because he actually lived in the same town that I lived in while I was growing up. But I never thought he was much of a celebrity because he didn't do any of the things that celebrities did. I thought celebrities had these fast and fancy cars. This guy drove a regular pickup truck. I thought that uh, celebrities had nice, fancy, flashy clothes. This guy was always in blue jeans and a ball cap. I thought that celebrities' kids went to rich private schools. This guy's kids were in the public school with me. They were in my classes. The first time my wife, who also grew up where I'm from, met this guy was in PetSmart. Celebrities don't go to PetSmart, but here this guy was. So every time my dad would say, that's one of the most famous people in the world, I never quite believed him. 
And then when I was a sophomore in college, it was 2014, this guy announced that he was going back on world tour, and in a matter of minutes, stadiums across the country began to sell out. It was then when I realized just how famous Garth Brooks really is. So... I've been traveling a lot this summer and playing this game in different green rooms as I'm speaking at these youth conferences. And I was with this guy, and I promise this actually happened. We were asked the question, who's the most famous person you've ever met? And he said, Mark Christian. Now, I know Mark. I love Mark. But that's not a name I would bring to the table. You can, you can spot a Bible college student from a long way away. So I offered up Garth Brooks in that moment. But I, didn't, I bet you didn't know we had a celebrity pastor. Mark just signed an endorsement deal with Nike. His shoes are going to look a little bit different next time he's up here on stage. Matthew is the gospel we're talking about today. And he kind of plays this game because he's the only gospel author that records his first interaction with Jesus. This is the most famous person Matthew's ever met. And the story is recorded in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew writes, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in first reading, there doesn't seem to be anything terribly spectacular about this encounter between Matthew and Jesus. But when you understand the historical context and the literary context, it takes on a whole new meaning, especially for Matthew. Let's talk history. When this story happened, the Jewish people were a conquered people. They had been conquered by Rome, and their day-to-day life was imposed uh, deeply on by Rome and Rome's rule over them. One of the things that Rome imposed on them was unfair taxes, very high taxes on the Jewish people. And Rome would use Jewish men like Matthew to collect these taxes, these unfair taxes. And on top of that, you had men like Matthew as a very common practice for tax collectors to take more money than they needed to collect and keep the money for themselves. And Jews did not like tax collectors because tax collectors had betrayed the Jews' greatest enemy. They had befriended Rome. This is what Matthew did for a living. He betrayed his own people. This is why the Pharisees, when they saw Matthew and Jesus eating, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does, your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were often viewed as worse than the common sinner. This is Matthew. And Matthew considers his encounter with Jesus to be nothing short of miraculous. And we know this to be the case because of the literary context in which we find Matthew's encounter with Jesus. Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 work together as one movement around this encounter to show that this encounter is miraculous. In Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, you have several miracles in just two chapters. You have Jesus healing a man with leprosy, the skin disease that we talked about last week from the Gospel of Luke. 
Jesus healed people of the paralysis. Jesus miraculously healed Peter's mother-in-law of her sickness. He cast out demons. He calmed a storm with his words. He healed a woman of perpetual bleeding. He resurrected a young girl from the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind, and he gave word to the mute. In just a short section of the gospel, Matthew packs all of these miracles in, and in the middle of all these miracles, he tells his own encounter his own story of meeting Jesus, implying that it is nothing short of miraculous. Now, my encounters with Garth Brooks have had little to no influence on the trajectory of my life other than to enhance my love for country music. Any other country music fans in here? All right, by a show of hands, those of you who are not showing it need to know God more, all right? (laughs) But Matthew's encounter with Jesus changed the entire trajectory of his life, every single detail of it. And so the question that we have to ask is, and who does Matthew think that Jesus is to imply that his encounter is a miracle? If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Matthew's gospel is about the king and his kingdom. And the title of Matthew's portrait is Jesus is King. Now, you can learn a lot about someone's genealogy. Maybe you've sent off your DNA to one of these companies who now knows every single detail about you. But you receive something back from them about where you're from or your ethnic makeup. And there's this guy named Jay Spates who received one of the most shocking revelations when he sent his DNA off to be tested. He got word back that he was actually African royalty from the small country of Benin. And he actually got in contact with the king and queen of the country, and they invited him over because they realized he was a descendant of one of their former kings. And when he got to the country, they crowned him as a prince. They welcomed him home as royalty. A surprising revelation for a man from Maryland, right? Jesus' genealogy tells us the same. He is royalty. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first words of his gospel, Matthew writes this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. And while Matthew will list 42 different generations in the genealogy of Jesus, none are more important than these first two, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew is connecting Jesus to the kingship of God's people. Now, Abraham was not titled king, but he was the father of the Jewish nation, the first of them. He was certainly their leader. And in Genesis chapter 11, we see a promise that God made to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He was the father of the Jewish nation, and his blessing would extend through his descendants, mostly his kings in a period of history. Now, David is the most popular king. He was not a perfect king, but he was a good king. And more than that, he served a good God who also made him a promise like God made Abram a promise. And speaking through the prophet Nathan, this is what God said to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. 
and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish gospel of the four. And what I mean by that is that it has the most connection with the Old Testament. In Matthew's gospel, you have 55 direct quotations from the Old Testament and over 200 allusions. Matthew's primary audience was a group of Jewish people, specifically a group of Jewish people who knew the promise of God that there would come a day that a king would sit on the throne for eternity. And they were waiting for this king. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew says, here he is. His name is Jesus. And the rest of the gospel focuses on two things, the king and his kingdom. And like Elijah said the past two weeks when we looked at the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke, if you really want to understand this gospel, you have to read it for yourself. Or even better yet, with a group of other people to truly understand the portrait that Matthew is painting of Jesus. And while I would love to get to talk on the qualities of the kingdom that Matthew paints, we have to stick with the main subject of the portrait, the king, King Jesus. And what does Matthew say about King Jesus? The first major emphasis that he makes is that Jesus is a threat to the kingdoms of this world. The first time that Matthew gives Jesus the title of king is in Matthew chapter 2. He doesn't wait long. Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The Magi that they're talking about in Matthew chapter 2 are the same wise men that you would put out at your nativity set during Christmas. And Herod, well, he's called king, but he's somewhat of a puppet king. Because he is king, yes, he has authority, he has rule over the Jewish people, but only to the extent that Rome gave it to him. Remember, the Jews are conquered by Rome. And so Herod doesn't really work for the Jews, he just works for Rome. And life is good for him, because he's in the in-between. So he wants to appease Rome at all times, that way they don't dethrone him. But there's an even bigger threat to his throne. It's the one to be born king of the Jews, the one from the line of David, because Herod knew the promise that God made to David that one would come and sit on the throne forever. And so his biggest threat, Herod's biggest threat was not Rome. It was the one born king of the Jews. And so when he hears this news, in order to protect his throne, he has to eliminate the threat. And he actually orders the Magi to let him know where this baby is so that he can go and kill the baby. But God protected this young king. And he sent the Magi elsewhere, and he actually sent an angel to Jesus' parents. He spoke to Joseph, Jesus' father. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Remember what I said about the Old Testament connection. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. 
Jesus was a threat to Herod and Herod's house of cards. For Herod had an illegitimate kingdom. And when legitimacy walks into the room, illegitimacy begins to fade. It is exposed. And Herod had tried everything, everything, even murder, genocide, to protect his throne, to protect his kingdom. But it failed. And our kingdoms will fail when they meet the kingdom of Jesus, won't they? And for those of us who want to follow Jesus and live in the tension of his kingdom and our kingdom, that is a good and gracious thing that his kingdom dissolves ours. The second major emphasis in Matthew about the kingship of Jesus is this. Jesus is a king marked by compassion and authority. Now, I think that Matthew has a strong distaste for Herod. For throughout his gospel, he kind of rubs it in how much better of a king Jesus is than Herod. King Herod was a puppet king who took his orders from Rome. King Jesus takes his orders from nowhere but heaven. He is not ordered by any other man, only by God. He has true authority, legitimate authority, pure authority, unlike King Herod. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, which I mentioned earlier, where Matthew's encounter is found, is the purest example of Jesus' authority. Where Matthew shows that he has authority over all, but not just authority over all, he also has compassion for all. Matthew chapter 8 and 9 begins with this story. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leper had a skin disease that had robbed him of life. And friendship. And he wanted to know, not if Jesus could heal him, because he knew that Jesus could. He knew that he was Lord and had the ability and the authority to heal him of this disease. The question that he is asking, does Jesus have compassion on him? And Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 are an emphatic yes. We see in verse 3 that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And this story of Jesus healing the leper begins a chain reaction of different stories that demonstrate the authority and the compassion of King Jesus. In these two chapters, you see that Jesus has authority over disease. He has authority over paralysis. He has authority over the weather, over demons. He even has authority over death. And the only thing that rivals his authority is his compassion. For in these two chapters, we see that he has compassion for the sick, compassion for the outsider, compassion for the young, compassion for the old. His compassion is for the scared, the helpless, the afraid. His compassion is for the possessed and the oppressed. His compassion is for the desperate and the dead. Where have you ever read about a king with such great authority? And such deep compassion, you haven't, for there is none like King Jesus. And this is why Matthew puts his story right in the middle of all of these miracles. Because he humbly considered it a privilege to know such an authoritative and compassionate king. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, are a capstone statement about the work of of Jesus that Matthew has just written about. 
He says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I'm sure Matthew counted himself among the flock. For before his encounter with Jesus, he was harassed and helpless, lost in his way, dead to sin. And here came a king full of authority, full of compassion to make him alive again. And we would be wise like Matthew to consider it the greatest honor of our life to be known and loved by such a king. But not everyone considered it the same. For the third major emphasis about King Jesus in Matthew's gospel is this. We killed King Jesus. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew records where Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as king. And at first he celebrated. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Praise be to the king. The king is here. But what started in coronation ends in crucifixion. For the next several chapters testify to our betrayal, denial of the king where he is arrested and is tortured and is handed over to be questioned by Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And as he stood before the very people he came to save, what was once shouts of celebration turned to shouts of condemnation as Jesus is handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who had the authority over life and death in that day. And he asked a crowd of Jews, what should I do with this man? What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And they answered with such a damning statement. His blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Man, can you imagine the tears rolling down Matthew's cheeks as he writes these words? Remembering the horror, the pain, the sadness. But the story of the king must be told as it has happened. And as the death sentence is issued, Matthew won't let his readers forget who the man to die is. It is their king. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped Jesus and put him in a scarlet robe. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
they said. And then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to be crucified. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We killed King Jesus. Remember how I told you that Matthew's primary audience was a Jewish audience? He won't let them forget. We killed our king. Our king is dead. And as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered it that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, speaking of Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead and this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And I think it's at this moment that Matthew sets his pen down and begins to wipe away the tears from his eyes. And in this moment, his sadness turns to gladness and giddiness overtakes him. For before he even writes it, he knows the story and how it ends. For the king will not stay dead because you can't keep an eternal king in an earthly tomb. And so with his heart bursting for joy, he writes these words for the world to read. There was a violent earthquake for an angel the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And what a privilege it is for those women to be the first among us to witness the empty tomb. Man, praise God for resurrection and praise God for the gospel of Matthew that shows us the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For the fourth major emphasis is this, the king is alive. The king is alive. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. And I think Matthew would want us to know this. There is space at the table. Just like Matthew, Jesus wants to eat with us. When I was in college, I did this internship at a church in Kentucky. 
And one night I went over to have dinner with the senior minister of the church. And after dinner, he asked me to get down on my back and he gave me a sharpie. And uh, he asked me to sign the bottom of his table, which I thought was weird. It's not something you always do when you're at somebody's house for dinner. After I got up and sat back down at the table, he said, hey, your name is on my table, which means you always have a place here. When I was in high school, I played baseball, and there's a guy on my baseball team named Dylan Bundy. Dylan is a pitcher now for the Los Angeles Angels, and when we were in high school, we always knew that Dylan was going to be something big in the world of baseball. And like most high schools, we would do these baseball camps for elementary or junior high-aged kids, and at the end of the week of camp, they would always get to bring uh, gloves and baseballs to get autographed, and uh, there was Dylan, and there were about 100 kids waiting for Dylan's autograph. And there were about seven of us other players standing over here by ourselves. Nobody came to get our autograph. But every now and then there would be a kid who would walk over to us and ask us to sign his baseball or his glove. And we would all just look at one another, knowing how much we were about to devalue that baseball by having our names on it. And you might be in this room today thinking that you might devalue the table if you put your name on it. I want you to know that's not true. Jesus did not invite Matthew to eat with him because Matthew was good. No, Matthew was bad. The only qualification that Matthew had to be at that table with Jesus is this. Jesus loved Matthew and wanted to be with him. He wanted their names to be together at a place of fellowship, at a place of friendship. Can you imagine it? The king of heaven, eating with Matthew, the one who betrays and steals from his very own people. Man, I want you to picture yourself at that table with Jesus. I don't know what you've done that would separate you from him, but I know this. He wants to bring you back to the table. I've been traveling, like I mentioned, and actually that church that I interned at in Kentucky has been at two events, their junior high event and their high school event. I've been preaching at them, and last week I was in Florida for their event, and I was preaching, and I went outside afterwards in the nice Florida air, and all these kids kept coming up to me and saying, hey, do you remember me? Which is the worst, because I remember none of them. They were all in sixth grade, now they're juniors and seniors in high school. Puberty changed them. And I didn't recognize him. Some of you may be in this room, and it's been a long time since you set your feet under a table with Jesus. You might have to walk up to him and say, hey, do you remember me? I was baptized several years back. I actually had read my Bible a lot. I was in love with you. And you know what he's going to say? Absolutely. I've never forgotten your name. I have always loved you. So if that's you tonight, would you find a place at the table with Jesus for your name is still on his table? What are we to do, those of us who sit at a table with the king, those who have friendship and fellowship with the king? The last words that I'm going to read today are from the lips of Jesus. They're actually the last words of Matthew's gospel. This is what he asks us to do, to go and bring more people to the table because the, the tomb is empty 
The throne is occupied, and there is still more space at his table. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.